Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we return to our discussion of the 12 steps and ask ourselves what it means to turn our will and our lives over to the care of a higher power. Welcome back to fucking cancelled. Welcome back to fucking cancelled. So it's actually been a minute since we did a step episode. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been like a long time. Um, but I think it's good that we get back to it. Yeah. So basically, listeners know that Jay and I are both, um, you know, have been in the 12 steps for a long time. And we use a lot of 12 step philosophy to guide our thinking on this podcast and in our lives. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to do a series of episodes where we actually talk about the different steps because we know we have a lot of listeners who aren't in a 12 step program, but we actually believe that. The 12 steps hold a lot of wisdom that could be useful for lots of people, whether or not you're an addict. Yeah, totally. And just, you know, when when we have been trying to figure out how to live our lives well, like the 12 steps have been really, really useful for us. So we just think it's like, it's good general knowledge for everyone to, to kind of have, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so this is step three. We're going to be talking about step three. And, you know, if you scroll back into the archive. Um, we've done episodes on step one and step two, but it was quite a while ago now. Mm-hmm. So the way step three goes is um, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him mm-hmm. or over to the care of a higher power as we understand it, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so classically, um, it's been a step that a lot of people have sort of stumbled on, had like a really hard time with. Um, because it does seem to be a tall order. Right. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are very concerned about the wording, you know, and like the idea of trying to, um, sort of give yourself up to God, um, is definitely, I think something that a lot of people would view with a lot of suspicion up front. Yeah. Um, and you know, the whole God question and like, what is a higher power and like, what is a higher power to you? is something that is explored in step two. And if you listen to that episode, you can hear us talking about that. But basically by the time you arrive at step three, you should have some kind of a sense of what your higher power is. Um, Could be a developing sense. It doesn't have to be written in stone or anything like that. I think it's always a developing sense, but some kind of a sense of a higher power that you are making a decision to turn your will and your life over to. Yeah, definitely. And I think like, you know, it's important to note that, the the higher power concept in 12 steps is one that is like purposefully very open. So Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, it's not even necessarily like a deity. It can kind of be like an energy or like a force or like the, just the correct functioning of the universe or whatever, um, or concepts like love or whatever. Like people have like a lot of different ways that they conceptualize a higher power. And I guess the important thing in step two is just sort of like accepting that that could exist and that it could help you, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people want to always nitpick about the language and stuff like that, but it's funny because it's like 
you know, the steps were written in the 1930s and it's actually very progressive for its time. Like, you know, people will be like, you know, whatever, how you were saying, if you don't want to say God, as you understand him, you can change it to like higher power as you understand it or as you understand them, I guess. Like you'll see meetings where they kind of change the wording like that, Mm -hmm. but it's like literally putting the, um, as you understand him was such a progressive move in the 12 steps because they were very explicitly stating that they were not prescribing like a Christian God. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, it says right in the big book that like Bill W was like, he could not really get behind this idea of like a God in the clouds, like looking down on him or whatever, like Mm -hmm. that, that conception of a higher power, like wasn't really working for him. And he could imagine that it wouldn't work for a lot of people. So intentionally from the beginning, it's a broader understanding of like what a higher power is. Yeah, it's funny eh? because like a lot of people um, who are very critical of 12 step stuff will go on about how it's like a Christian, like religious organization. But yeah, it's true that like, I mean, while it it definitely had roots that were um, based in like a a Protestant group originally, like a long time ago. um, Yeah, they very purposefully distanced themselves from Christianity. Um, And yeah, you know, they don't mention Jesus (laughs) anywhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Totally. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So to turn your will and your life over to the care of a higher power. I think part of what is weird for people about this is that it seems kind of like intangible and vague, you know? Um, And I think for people who are living in a very secular context, in a very like non-spiritual, non-religious context, which is many of us these days, you Mm. know? it can feel very like unclear what that even means, you know? And I often feel like when I'm talking to people outside of 12 step groups who are not spiritual or religious in any way, trying to translate these ideas and like make them make sense is like difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult for me. I feel like if I don't go to a meeting for like a week, I forget what this fucking step means. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like spirituality doesn't come um, naturally to me. It's something that I have to like work at like hard and constantly or else like it just slips away from me, you know? So let's try to break down what it means. Let's, um, I know in, um, the big book and in 12 step literature generally, like they're really big on like metaphors. Mm -hmm. Um, and they use metaphors a lot to like sort of illustrate these more intangible, um, spiritual ideas. And in the big book, they have this, um, extended metaphor about the actor who's trying to run the show. Yes. I love this metaphor. And so basically, you know, what it's saying is like, picture that you're an actor in a play and, you know, your job is to say your lines and like do your, what do they call that? Blocking move around the stage the way you're supposed to. Right. Yeah. Um, and you have your role and you're supposed to play that role. Um, and the other actors have their roles and then there's like lighting people and there's like a director and there's like a whole bunch of different stuff going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Basically they're like, if you were an actor, but while you're acting in the play, you're like telling other actors what their lines are supposed to be. You're like directing people. You're like telling, you're giving lighting cues. You're doing all this stuff. Like it's obviously not going to be a good production. And how are you supposed to also be acting while you do all that? Exactly. So you can't do your role well. And also everybody around you is going to be super fucking resentful. And like, what are you doing? Yeah. (laughs) 
So like, that's just like a metaphor, but basically what it, what it's referring to is, is this idea that like, we think we can try to control everything in our lives that we think through the, through our willpower, we can try to control people, places, and things like all of the circumstances in our lives. And that if we just try hard enough and if we exert ourselves, we can make people into who we want them to be. We can make circumstances into what we want them to be. And we can basically like force our lives to be what we want them to be. Yeah. And not, not only do we believe that we can do that, but we believe that we should do that, that it's justified for us to do that, that it's the best way, the best thing for us to do. And so, yeah, in the 12 steps, they, well, they, they tend to call this like self-will, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like the idea that my personal idea of how everything should be is the best idea and that like I have the right or even like the responsibility mm-hmm. to sort of like remake the world around me um, in, in my own image, so to speak, like to, yeah, like Clementine was saying to like force people in various ways to, um, behave the way that I want them to behave, um, to make circumstances conform with how I want them to look and so on. And another, I mean, I guess like metaphor, um, that they use in the, in the big book about this is just the idea of, I don't know if it's really a metaphor, but yeah, like the idea that like every, every man plays God, you know, the idea that like in the modern secular and individualistic, uh, world that we live in, that each person is sort of encouraged to think of themselves as the center of the universe in a certain way. Um, and that it leads to like an enormous amount of spiritual suffering, both for those people and for everyone else that's sort of like caught in the crossfire as everyone tries to force everyone else to do what they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that is sort of presented as the spiritual problem, right? It's this, this um, obsession with self-will that is like rampant among like everybody. Um, and then basically what the step tries to do is to show addicts and alcoholics that for us, like not only um, did we do the kind of like individualist self-seeking um, shit that everybody else is doing, but for us, it brought us to some like extremely dark places, mm-hmm. um, which gave us a kind of like extra boost in terms of like noticing that our self will is not getting us anywhere useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but for many people, it won't necessarily bring them to that like rock bottom place, you know, like people can go for a long time, um, maybe their whole lives without noticing that they're obsession with self-will is like not working for them even if it's like fucking up their relationships and making them unhappy because it's not bringing them to that place of like really like dark like you know misery or like danger um of their danger for their lives you know Mm -hmm. yeah and so you know before this episode we were just reading from the 12 and 12 which is another um 12 step book that kind of goes into the steps in more detail and length than in the big book And at the end of step three in the 12 and 12, they have the serenity prayer. Um, And I think the serenity prayer is connected to step three. Very much so. Um, And so for those of you who don't know, um, it's God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Basically, because I think when people hear this, they're like, okay, so you're turning your will and your life over to the care of a higher power. But what does that fucking mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, does it mean that I'm not going to have any agency in my life anymore? Am I not? Like, it sounds like it's very passive, you know? 
um, that you're just not going to be doing anything active, that you're just going to be going with the flow. Um, and I think that the serenity prayer does a good job of showing this like dynamic relationship between like active, like agency and then a type of surrender or acceptance. Um, and the way that those two things together are what we are aiming for in step three. Definitely. I think there's this kind of dynamic um, in, you know, the modern West, although probably not limited to the modern West, but there's this dynamic where there's, we kind of believe that there's like two ways to be like one is the master, you know, one is playing God. Right. And the other is the dominated, like the, the one who is just told what to do and, and doesn't have responsibility, but also doesn't have power. Um, but a huge part of what the 12 steps try to do is to instill a sense of what they call like right-sizedness in people. Um, and that is like to understand that you are not supposed to be God and you are also not supposed to be like just this, well, as they put it in the, in the big book, the hole in the donut, you're not supposed to be like a nothingness. You're not supposed to be this, this, um, powerless automaton either. Right. Um, what you were trying to do is build up your capacity to like align your um, naturally occurring willpower with useful, productive, healthy, and helpful um, directions, right? And like, yeah, like often, because I definitely have like a huge problem with God in the sense that I don't really like necessarily believe in a deity, but like when I, when I do this step, because I have to do this step to be like, all right, you know, um, when I think about God, what I think about is like, often is like, um, what would it be like if there was a sort of entity or a force that loved me, that like really cared for me, right? What would that be like? And then holding that in mind, I'm like, how can I align my own will with that? You know? And that, that doesn't mean like doing anything that I want to do because doing what I want to do often is like extremely bad for me, you know, and, and a, a, a sort of power that really cared for me wouldn't just sanction me doing whatever I wanted to do. A power that really cared for me would sanction and encourage, you know, behaviors that are like healthy for me and healthy for others and that are helpful and productive and make me feel, um, like authentic and at peace and so on, you know? which are behaviors that are very different from the kind of behaviors that I actually want to do, which is like dissociating, scrolling on my phone for four hours, like getting really high and drunk, whatever, you know, mm -hmm, acting mm -hmm. out in various ways. Yeah. I think one thing that one sort of existential trouble that people run into with this step is the idea that if there is a loving God or a loving force in the universe um, that we are supposed to be entrusting our will and our life to, why do horrible things happen? Um, right? Yeah. And why is there so much suffering and pain? And how can you trust turning your will and your life over to a being that would allow such suffering and pain? Mm -hmm. Um, and so... I think it's a really important existential question that is worth grappling with, Yeah, you know, and it's kind of like a very spiritual question to grapple with. Um, 
sometimes, you know, people will say in meetings and um, they will say like, there's so many times when I was out there um, drinking and using and like doing chaotic behaviors that like I couldn't, I could have died and like I didn't die. And so I know that my higher power was like with me Mm. and I say this with love, but I have always had yeah, I hate that. a big problem with that mm-hmm. because it implies that the people who did die, yeah, like didn't have their higher power with them, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, and it it invokes this very like interventionist kind of god who is sort of like choosing like who suffers and who doesn't based on what like who their favorites are or something like this, right? Um, and I don't think that it helps people to grapple with the reality that like no matter what you do, no matter how, quote, good you are, no matter how much you pray, no matter how spiritual you are, no matter how much you try to align your will in your life, no matter how much you try to take right action, like, horrible things can happen to you. And probably in your life, horrible things will happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of being human. It's part of being alive. It's part of being a living being. And so, to me, you know, those experiences are inbuilt um and aligning my will in my life with my higher power is not about avoiding those experiences but it's actually about facing them right it's about being willing to be with those experiences you know and like that's not it's this tricky line because it's like it's not to say like you know if there's something that you could do to to prevent those experiences, of course, you should do it. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's actions that you can take that will like decrease suffering for yourself and for the world, of course, you should do it. But if suffering is inevitable, if certain suffering is is just happening and you couldn't stop it, then you have to face it mm-hmm. and you have to be willing to be with it. And in fact, you have to be willing to be transformed by it. Um, this is at least my spiritual take. And I think that it's some of the most difficult spiritual work, but it's inbuilt into reality. So like we do have to do it. Um, and being in alignment with my higher power through that is actually letting myself experience it, um, be with that, be changed by it and move through it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I remember like once, I don't know if I've ever said this on the podcast before, but I remember once in fellowship after a meeting, fellowship is when everybody goes for coffee and a bunch of alcoholics were all hanging out. And like this guy said something where he was like, you know, basically like being in alignment with his higher power means that like, he doesn't have to worry about, I don't know, being like jumped or like having some kind of really crazy thing happen to him. Right. I think there's a proverb about this. Um, I can't remember where it comes from. I don't know if it's a Christian proverb or if it's like something else, but it's like, it has to do with a donkey and it's like, trust God, but tie up your donkey. Right. Do you know this? <laughs> I, I'm not sure, but I've, I've heard sayings like that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like to, to trust God or to trust your higher power doesn't mean to, to be immune to life and to, to the things that happen in the world. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's kind of the opposite. In fact, it's like accepting that the world is like a messy place and like, it's not only just like a messy place, but it's a place dominated by the fact that 
we monkeys do have free will, or at least it appears that we do, you know, obviously this is like a a philosophical and or like theological question. Um, but we do appear to have free will. I believe in free will. Yeah. And like people, um, so do I, and people therefore go out and do all kinds of crazy shit right to each other often. Right. And that causes a lot of pain and misery and suffering. And also people go out and do things that cause pain and misery and suffering to themselves, you know, and this is not, you know, this is not because like the universe is like making it happen to you. It's because it is happening in the universe. Yeah. And also, you know, even beyond that, there's pain and misery and suffering that isn't even human created. Right. There's pain and misery and suffering that comes from, you know, of course, climate change is making natural disasters and that is human created. But like prior to climate change, there's still natural disasters, you know, like the ocean would rise up and fucking kill people. Right. And also there's death, which we all, will experience and we will experience the people that we love dying and we will experience, you know, illness and disability. Mm -hmm. And like, this is one of the central sort of spiritual insights, I think, which is that um, no matter how perfectly we arrange our societies and we could have like a really utopian society, right? Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's within our grasp Yes. um, to have a society that is like verging on like post scarcity where like everyone is very well taken care of and so on and so forth. Um, That is something that is like a a real possibility, like in, in our lifetimes, I think. Um, But even in a society like that, there is still horrible shit that happens by accident. You know, people like, like Clem was just saying, when people die, like, you know, if your fucking like parent dies or something like that is going to hurt you. Right. And there's no way to prevent like death. There's no way to prevent like accidents happening. There's no way to prevent heartache. Mm -hmm. You know, these kinds of things that like are a a natural and necessary part of the human condition. And so the question is like, how do we deal with these as human beings? Mm -hmm. Right. And that is what spirituality is for in a, in a very real way, you know? And I think that people who don't have, have any way to deal with these kinds of things like suffer a lot you know they're mm-hmm. they're the only like real um other option other than than spirituality i guess there's two like one is like numbing yourself out with drugs and alcohol and other compulsive behaviors and the other is just dissociating from it you know mm-hmm. neither, neither of which are are very good for you um and yeah so the question is sort of like since there are more problems out there than just, you know, for addicts, right? It's like there's more problems out there than just our addictions, right? And there's more problems in us than just our addictions. Um, and like, I don't know, I'm, I'm struggling with this right now. Like, I'll just, I'll put it on the pod. It's on public record now. I um, have like a real big problem with social media. I think a lot of people do, you know, in my generation. But I can notice it because, um, I mean... Not that I'm like so special or anything, but like I think lot, lots of people like don't don't really see it um, as as much of a compulsion as I do, and other addicts might because like I know what it feels like to have that addictive compulsion, right? Like I really remember it; it's very vivid in my mind still. Like the the feeling of like the thirst of like um, really needing a drink and and just doing like knowing that you'll do anything to get it, you know. Um, I remember how, how strong that compulsion feels, you know? And so when I sort of see myself like pulling out my phone, um, even when I'm supposed to be doing something else or, you know, when I'm like on Instagram and I get bored, so I open Instagram or whatever, like these kinds of compulsive behaviors, like I know where they're coming from in my head. Like it's this like dissociative kind of, um, compulsion 
it's this like strong desire to get out of my own skin, you know? Um, and so I am trying really hard to deal with that right now. I'm like going through the steps again with my sponsor, um, trying to work on this like social media shit. Cause it's a fucking problem for me. Cause it like, it interferes with my life and sometimes makes my life fucking unmanageable. If I'm going to bed at like four, because I'm fucking like on Instagram, like doing nothing, you know, like that is, um, that's a problem for me, you know? And so the, the point of that tangent was that there even after we stop using, there are still problems that exist. And the question is like, what can we do about those problems? And we can't just stop. I can't just get sober again from like, from, from drugs and alcohol. Cause I'm already sober from drugs and alcohol. So there's like something else that I need to do, you know, and it is to apply these like spiritual principles. And this applies not just to me and like other people with like substance use disorders, but to kind of everyone, you know, like there are these issues that will keep cropping up for us because it's part of the human condition. And like, we, we need, we need a spiritual solution to spiritual problems. Mm-hmm. I think like, you know, you said dissociative a number of times and I think like it's a really interesting concept, you know, dissociation. Mm. It's this like checking out of reality um, that we can do in a lot of different ways. And I think like drugs and alcohol and like other forms of addiction, they are a way of like coping with something unbearable Mm. by attempting to like check out of it in some kind of a way. Um, And I'm just trying to draw it back to what we were just saying about the fact that these horrible things will happen or that things will happen in life that aren't fair or things will happen in life that are really painful. The opposite of dissociation is presence. Right. Right. And like when, you know, when you're a child, the best way to parent, I think, and it's not something that all parents are able to do, but the best way to parent a small child who's experiencing something really overwhelming and painful, um, like their pet dying, right, mm. is not to try to make that pain go away, but it is to be with the child with the pain yeah, and to bring a loving presence and witnessing to the situation so that you can be together with that pain and actually face it and actually feel it and move through it, you know? And I think that there's this way in which we have like this backlog of like experiences and emotions and things that have happened to us that we have not processed because we did not have that loving witnessing, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so therefore we don't know how to reproduce it in ourselves. Because, like, basically in childhood, those formative experiences, they create, like, a map that we can then place in our brains that we can then, um, we can do it internally later on in life, right? Right. If we didn't have that for various reasons, and these days, very few people do have that because, like, not just because of trauma, but also because of, like, capitalism and, like, parents being really stressed out and not knowing what they're doing and they also have trauma and, like, whatever, Um, we don't have that internal map. And so we don't know, like when something bad happens, we don't know how to just be with it. We are constantly trying to look for the solution to be like, well, how do I make sure that never happens again? How do I like heal from this as soon as possible? How do I make it go away? You know? Right. And that response, it actually produces more suffering because it's, it's like, I mean, it can create the kinds of addictive behaviors that you're talking about, which then create their own problems, you know? But it also just 
you know, I'm sure all of us know what it feels like to be vulnerable and in pain and to have somebody respond by just trying to make that go away. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a rejection. And so we do that internally all the time. Um, yeah. And we don't know how to be with it. Yeah. So I think a lot of step three is actually about being able to be with what is without trying to change it. Like, obviously, you change the things you can. Right. But, like, there's certain things that you can't change. You accept the things you can't. And so you learn how to be with those things and how to let them change you, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that process of learning how to do that is not the only thing because, like, knowing how to do it is not even really the question, although it's important. But being willing to do it is the mm-hmm. question, you know, and that is why in in the 12 steps, like they talk a lot about willingness mm-hmm. and, and in particular with this step, right? This step really is about the willingness to, well, it's the willingness to turn your will and your life over the care of God as you understand God. But like what that means in practice is that you accept the necessity of that continuous spiritual action. Mm. You understand that 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 process of like accepting the things you can't change, um, being willing to change the things you can, like this is a um, a spiritual decision and you have to keep making it. You can't make it once. You have to like continuously make it, you know, and that is a tall order. But accepting the necessity of that is what this step is all about and what leads us to the ability to actually do that, you know, and, and with that ability comes, um, comes some peace, you know? And the thing is, yeah, it's, it's ongoing. And like, like I mentioned earlier, I basically fucking forget about this in like four days. If I don't remind myself in some way, you know, it's like, it does not come naturally to me. I need to keep working at it. Um, because I have a very strong sort of like self-will. I really want to run things the way I want them to run. You know, I do not like the fact that the world, is other than I would like. <laughs> it fucking bothers me. And I I hate that I can't have it my way, you know? Um, I fucking hate it. And I always have, you know? Um, but that doesn't make me happier. Like, hating the way the world is doesn't mm-hmm. make me happy. Mm-hmm. It also doesn't change the world. Yes. It, it doesn't. It yes. just fucking factually doesn't, you know? It's like bashing your head into a wall over and over again. Wall stays there, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Um, all you get is a bruised head. Mm-hmm. You know, possibly a concussion. Possibly a concussion. If you keep going hard enough, you'll end up in jail as an institution or death, um, <laughs> as they say in NA. Yeah. Um, so one thing I kind of wanted to tie in here um, is the work of Lance Dodes. You know, I'm a big Lance Dodes fan. Yeah, and he is very critical of the twelve steps. He's not a twelve stepper, um, and in many ways, his thesis about addiction and what addiction is, is like, could on the surface seem very contrary to the 12 steps. So that's why I wanted to bring it up because it's, it's actually, I think step three in particular, that is the step that on the surface seems to be the most contrary to Lance Dode's thesis about addiction. Um, and I actually think that the two things can be complementary. So I just want to pull that out a little bit. So Lance Dode's, his understanding of addiction, which I think is profoundly fucking accurate, is that it is um, a response to a feeling of helpless rage. And so basically, when you have had experiences over and over again in which you learned that you were not able to take actions to effectively change your circumstances for the better, and then you learn to basically repress your will and your desire 
to make those changes. You know, you basically are in a, uh, an experience of learned helplessness. Then that produces rage internally because it's like being trapped. Like, yeah. And you hate that. Yeah. And so you want to lash out against it. You want to claim your agency. You want to claim your power, but you keep repressing it. And so addiction in Lance Dode's framing is the, it's actually an act of taking your power back by choosing to do something that is going to make you feel better, that is going to resolve the helplessness by taking an action. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, because of the way that addiction works, addiction produces more helplessness because then you get stuck in that behavior um, and it's like a repetitive cycle. And so for Lance Dodes, his um, argument is that addicts, more than anything else, need to reclaim their agency and, one might say, their will. Right. And so this, on the surface, seems very um, contradictory to step three. And he actually points out that, like, the 12 steps, they do work for some people and they don't work for other people. Mm. And nobody really knows why. Um, and his argument is that the people that it works for are people who find the 12 steps empowering and that it actually increases their sense of agency. And then if people do the 12 steps and it feels disempowering and it decreases their sense of agency, those are the people that it's not going to work for. Right. Um, and so I just want to talk about the way in which the concept of turning over your will in your life could increase your sense of agency. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right? Which is like an important part of the way that they talk about it in the literature, but yeah. Yeah, because basically when you are not spending all of your energy trying to change things that you cannot change, it frees up a huge amount of energy to change the things that you can. Right. Because not only is it like impossible to change things that you can't change, but it's a time suck. It's an energy suck, mm -hmm. you know? Like, and I want to make this concrete, like- Rumination, I think, for me, is a huge one. I love to ruminate. and Which is? Which is what? Ruminating. What? Which is, what is ruminating? Oh. Ruminating is the process of obsessively thinking about something over and over and over again in your mind. Um, and just sort of turning it over, turning it over, so that you can, like, if you think about it enough, you'll figure it out somehow. Right. You know? Um, it's like obsessive compulsive thinking. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you know, I will be upset about something and then I will just be in a mental state about that for so long, just obsessing over it. Right. Um, and rumination is in a way, it is an attempt to change the things that I cannot change. Right. Because it is like what I'm doing is I'm trying to think if I could just think about it a certain way, if I could just figure it out, then I could change it. But if it was so easy for me to change, I don't think I would be thinking about it this much. Right. Right? Like the reason I'm obsessing is because I can't change it. And so I'm bashing my head against the wall, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, this is just an example for me. The way it plays out for me is that I will be stuck in rumination, which is me trying to change the things I cannot change. And as soon as I step out of that and I'm like, oh, wait, I'm obsessing over something I can't change. What if I redirect my energy towards something I can change? That's me doing step three. Like, that's me being like, oh, right. I can't change that. So can I move my energy where it will actually be effective, where it will actually be useful and do something, you know, to change the way I'm feeling, do something, 
you know, to change something else that's within my control, um, either related or unrelated to the situation. Yeah. And so in that way, like that process of being like, I'm redirecting my energy from something that I can't change towards something that I can, I really see how that is in alignment with Lance Dode's thesis because it does increase my agency. Yeah. It's actually freeing up my agency from a place where it was trapped into a place where it can now move and do things in the world. Yeah, it's like it can it can break this loop. I think that Lance Dodes is like absolutely onto something. Um, and yeah, to make it concrete again for like for myself, it's like, okay, so for example, I need to renew my driver's license. I've needed to do this for like six months, right? Um, and I'm going to do it soon, I promise. Um, but here's the thing, like I have a lot of learned helplessness. Like it's like a big problem for me. Um, so I'll, I'll be sitting at my desk or something. I'll look at my to-do list and right at the top there, it's like, renew your driver's license. Um, and I have this like sort of automatic understanding that I can't actually do that, that it's impossible, um, that I don't have the power to do that. I feel powerless about it, even though I obviously could in reality, like my feeling about it is that I can't. Mm -hmm. And that feeling produces in me helpless rage. I feel very angry about it. Um, it's an extremely uncomfortable feeling and I want to make that feeling stop. And I also want to make some kind of a decision. Like I have like an urge to make a decision, yes. you know, and that, that loop is the loop of addiction. Like, yes. like if I was drinking, I would immediately have a drink. Right. Um, and I'm not drinking. So I'll often do other things. Like I'll pull out my phone and just look at it, you know, cause it's sort of like, it somewhat interrupts the loop, except that it like kind of feeds into the loop itself um, as well, you know. But it gives you a temporary feeling of empowerment. Yeah, like I did something, you know. I did something to sort of like end that situation in my head. And also it soothes but, you. It and, soothes and you it emotionally. Soothes me. And it soothes me, which is like wh why, one of the reasons why drugs work so well for this yes. loop, right? Um, but in the end, you know, I did not get my driver's license. The, yes. the situation didn't change, you know, um, and the situation is now worse because it's one more day that I spent not getting my driver's license. Yes. You know what I mean? Um, and, but by contrast, like, and this is where the, the third step comes in, right? It's like, what if there's like another sort of like branch of this flow chart, um, which is instead of, um, in my case, like maybe pulling out my phone and like scrolling for an hour or some shit. Um, what if I took, what if I was like, um, what is God's will for me in this situation? Well, you know, God wants me to be happy and healthy and productive, blah, blah, blah. Right. So I should probably just get my driver's license. Right. Um, and so what God wants is for me to get my driver's license, <laughs> you know? And if I kind of think about it that way, it's like way easier for me to step outside of this, this feedback loop. And I can do something like, for example, I can make like a small step towards it by, for example, looking up like the hours of the fucking, uh, the SAAQ where I can go get my license. Yeah. You know? Can I just add something to this? Yes. Cause I think there's something really resonant about what you're describing. I have to renew my RAMQ, which is my health card. I am in the exact same thing. I'm in the exact same situation with my health card. I absolutely cannot do it. I can't. And it's been, <laughs> it's been like fucking, like, I don't know how long it's been like a year and I don't have health care and I just cannot do it. You know, so I'm in the exact same situation. Um, but I think there's something that I want to pull out that, that has to do with this, this two part thing that, that we've been talking about this, like, um, this loving presence 
towards the things that we can't change. And then this like positive action towards the things that we can, right? Right. Because I actually think that a piece of this is not just, okay, right, my higher power wants me to have healthcare. So I should probably, you know, figure out the first step on this list of overwhelming tasks. That's a piece of it. But the other piece is this emotional reaction that I'm having. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And can I bring that energy that I was talking about, about the parent? Because like, you know, I'm sure parents listening have had this experience. And also maybe if we had like loving caregivers, we might've had this experience in childhood where like, you know, can you picture a child getting really frustrated Yes, and, and being like angry, you know, and sort of like throwing the blocks or something because like they couldn't figure out what they were trying to do. Right. And they're kind of like having a temper tantrum because they're like, I can't do it. And like, it feels so frustrating. And then I feel trapped and powerless and it's like really overwhelming. And maybe it's bringing up like, I don't know, depending on the other types of experiences that this child has had, maybe it's bringing up shame or embarrassment or like, you know, a layered emotional experience that is being triggered by the situation of them. Like, I don't know, trying to build a tower out of blocks, but like, it's actually bigger than that. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The loving parent, you know, can be with that child in that experience and be like, yeah, it does feel frustrating, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, maybe it does bring up feelings of embarrassment because, you know, your friend was able to build a tower of blocks and you can't, you haven't been able to figure it out yet. And that emotional experience is like really painful. Um, And if you're able to be with that emotional experience a little bit and like give it some space um, and then move into direct action of like, okay, you know, it's not staying there, but it's being like, we need to like see that that's coming up, give it some loving presence. And then from there, move into the action. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that that's like a big part of it. And I think that that emotional component is like often skipped over, you know, that like, because just telling the child, okay, so do it, build the tower now. Yeah. Is like, or stop being angry yeah, or like, exactly. be quiet, go to your room. Yeah. Like, or like, why are you making such a big deal out of it? It's just a tower. Anyone can put blocks on top of each other. Well, no, they can't. It's hard. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And so like actually being with that, that frustration and that, that helplessness and that anger and that whatever else is coming up. um, I often think like shame and embarrassment is like a component of it that feels very unbearable. Um, Oh, it totally is. Yeah. yeah, You know? And so like soothing that, being present with it, normalizing it, humanizing it, being like, this is a process. This is part of it. It doesn't make you a failure. We can try again. You know, I think that that is all part of it. And I think that that is part of the work of step three is kind of like, you know, in an ACA, um, which is adult children of alcoholics and other dysfunctional families, they talk about being your own loving parent. That's like a big component of ACA. Totally. And I think that that's part of this. It's like, can you bring that energy that like a loving parent would bring to a situation of a child having a temper tantrum about not being able to complete a task? Right. And in the NA steps, it it talks very explicitly about how like turning your will and your life over to the care of God is not turning your will and your life over to the uh, 
authoritarian control of God. Yeah, like a tyrant. Um, it's the care of God. So yes. it's letting someone care about you. Yes. It's letting yourself be cared for. Yes. You know, and like, it's like when you think about what that means, like if I care for someone, it's not because I'm trying to control everything that they do, you know? Yes. If I care for a child, like, yes, I have some like responsibilities over them, but I'm, I'm not just sort of like locking them in a box, you yeah. know? Um, and by the same token, like when I am like locked in this like cycle of like, helpless rage, learn helplessness, shame, you know, that spiral, the, the solution, like, yeah, it's like you were just saying the solution is to take a right action. Um, but it's also to allow that care to come through from somewhere, you know? And honestly, like I basically like can't do it by myself. Like it doesn't come automatically. Right. Like if I am feeling that way and I search around inside my own head, there is no care there for me, you know? That's not how it feels. Yes. Um, there's no part of me that is, like, trying to care, you know? So I have to consciously, like, make that um, that effort to access that, that feeling that I might be cared for, that I might be, like, worth something, you know? That I'm not, like, a fucking, like, parasite. Um, and I need to do that on purpose, you know? Yes. And that is, the, that is the spiritual action there, you know? And it's, like, if you believe in God, it is allowing... God to care for you, allowing yourself to feel God's love, you know? Um, yeah. Um, one other piece I want to pull in here, cause it just really made me think of it. Pull it in. With, with what you were just saying is internal family systems. So I actually think internal family systems, which is a therapeutic modality that was, um, developed by Richard Schwartz. Um, I think internal family systems would be an incredibly useful model for people doing the 12 steps who are atheists. Um, because often we have this, this uh, question of like, how do atheists do this? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, how do people who don't believe in like an external higher power do this? And I think like there's many ways, not just one. Um, But I actually think that internal family systems could be a useful model. It is a useful model, like even just philosophically. Yeah. Because in internal family systems, they have this idea. So for those who don't know, internal family systems is the idea that inside every person are many, many different parts of our personality. And we all have them. And these parts um, all have different roles, but the parts are trying to keep us safe in different ways. And many of these parts might be like developmentally stuck in the past, you know, and be stuck in traumas. Um, They might have really, you know, maladaptive behaviors that are initially designed to um, help us, but that unfortunately are not helping us or not serving us at this stage, you know? But in the internal family systems model, there is the self and the self is with a capital S and all people have this part of them. And the self, I think, is in alignment with the higher power because the self has inherently in it. And in the internal family systems model, they literally put forward that this is an inherent part of all people. It is compassionate. It is, I can't remember, there's like a list of words, they all start with C. Curious, <laughs> compassionate, like that's so handy that the old service. Yeah, um, <laughs> but basically, yeah, I can't remember what they all are actually in the model, but like they're, it's kind. I know that doesn't start with a C, um, but it's just like this part of us that is like our higher self, I guess. That is like sure, very compassionate, considerate, curious, 
Like it's this loving parent energy yeah, that we're talking about. Warm and ethical. This this part that is and like really able to be there with a the loving presence and like try to help figure it out, you know? Mm-hmm. And so in the internal family systems model, this is inbuilt in all of us. Mm-hmm. Um and like he talks about why he believes this when working with different um clients in therapy over the years. Mm-hmm. That like there is this way where he can like tap into this part. Um and I like this model a lot because I think it's very empowering because he doesn't believe this is something people need to learn. Right. He actually believes all people have it within them. It's just being blocked by other parts who are running the show. Right. And so when you actually um, seek out the self and you come into a conscious relationship with it and you get the parts to trust the self, then the self starts acting in your life. Totally, totally. Actually, this is really interesting because one of my first sponsors um, was trying to help me deal with my, my atheism. And he suggested like a, a higher power model that I think his sponsor had had. And it he called it um, best his name, you know. Right. So, like, so for me it would be best J. Right. And um, I used that for a long time, and I still kind of use it. Actually, it's just sort of like, what would best J do? You know, mm-hmm. what would like the the most like happy, authentic, kind, curious, warm, ethical version of me do in this situation? You know, and th- that is like a pretty good way of sort of like when you don't know what to do, figuring out what you should do. Yeah. Um, and it's r- remarkably similar to what you just said. Yeah. So if people are interested. Um, there's a book called No Bad Parts by Richard Schwartz that kind of outlines the model. So you should definitely check that out. Yeah. Um, I think it could be handy, like component to working in the 12 steps. Yeah. So as usual, um, we like to sort of connect all this to the wider political environment that we live in. Um, and yeah, I think with regard to the nexus and just the social justice left in general, like, you know, We've, we've mentioned this like a bunch of times on the podcast, but it's, it's worth repeating that like the serenity prayer, like basically accepting the things that you cannot change and trying to change the things that you can, um, is like maybe the most, (laughs) it's like one of the most profound and useful, like interventions into philosophy that like anyone has ever come up with. And, um, everyone should have it like tattooed on their fucking foreheads and, and like in, on the left, like we spend just like a fucking enormous amount of time trying to change things that are like probably not going to change, you know? Um, and or that we don't have the power to change ourselves. That's, that's what I mean. Yeah. Like that, that what we're doing is not going to change them. Yeah. And then we are really, really neglecting the things that like we could actually potentially change, you know, often, very often, um, in, in today's left, what that means is we're trying to change people. Yes. I think. Like, I think that there's like a huge, a huge issue. Like what we're trying to do fundamentally is we're trying to like scold and or bully and or quote unquote educate people um, into agreeing with us. We're trying to enforce our will onto other people. Um, and we're doing it in these like often very ineffective ways, um, particularly with like the the shaming, scolding, and bullying, like and threatening and threatening. This is like this is like not an effective way to change anyone's mind. Um, sometimes you can produce a change in people's behavior um, by scaring them. Yeah, but you're also producing this like enormous resentment. And like since the the left like doesn't even have any like real. Um, like power, power, you, you can't even like enforce it over the long term. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, we don't have like a dictatorship to like fucking like throw people in jail if they like don't agree with us or something. Like all we can really do is like bully them socially and sometimes like isolate them and destroy their lives on an individual basis. Um, but mostly like it just kind of makes an ass of everyone um, and doesn't produce any of the results that we really want. Yeah. This, um, 
it's reminding me of a tradition and we haven't talked about the traditions that much on the podcast. Maybe we will at some point, but as well as, um, the 12 steps, a, another 12 step fellowships have 12 traditions. And this is more about how we run the fellowship or like how the program is run sort of like on a organizational level. Um, but one of them is attraction rather than promotion. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and it talks about how, you know, like in AA, they don't go around like lecturing alcoholics and like telling alcoholics what to do yes, or threatening alcoholics and being like, if you don't come to AA, we're going to punish you and publicly humiliate you and, and ridicule you. Yeah. Um, they're like attraction rather than promotion means actually embodying the principles and showing how the program works in our own lives is far more effective at getting people to change than basically trying to force them to do it, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's like, I think that this connects with what you were just talking about in that, you know, on the left, the supposed left of today, we think that the way to like, for example, you know, make people not be bigoted or something is by literally threatening them, shaming them, scolding them, humiliating them, degrading them. Yeah. And in reality, you know, modeling our principles of showing them that actually, like, not being a bigot is a very nice time. <laughs> and and or also, like, showing them that the people that they have, like, bigoted views about are people just like them. Yes. And know? that, like, but, like, that, like, what I mean is, is that, like, you are losing something mm-hmm. by being a bigot. Yeah. You're losing something. You're losing the opportunity for relationships, connection, community. Um, Understanding of like the world. Learning new things. Mm-hmm. Solidarity. Yep. You know, there's like many positive things um, that you are losing access to by behaving in that way. Yep. Right. And so like, you know, people are always like, it's consequences. And I'm like, well, the consequences are actually inbuilt. Do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah, I do. Because there's like many obvious downsides to being like a fucking... Yes. Like, I often say this, and I don't know if people understand what I mean, but, like, nobody gets away with anything. No one gets away with anything because everybody lives with what they do and what they've done. Right. And so, like, the idea that I need to go out and extra punish you, it's kind of out of touch because the reality is, you know, people who behave in profoundly antisocial ways suffer from it. And they experience inbuilt consequences, which is that they are cutting themselves off from their human community by behaving in antisocial ways, right. you know? Um, and so those consequences already exist. They're inherent to the actions. And we don't actually need to, like, extra punish people. We actually just need to show people that there's another way that feels better and model that, you know? Totally. Um, and I think that that's a way more effective and appealing way of doing things that is way more persuasive um, than what we're currently doing. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like, I'm just trying to think about this kind of concretely, you know, it's like, okay, like, for example, if let's say, you know, somebody, let's say I know somebody um, who is having a pretty hard time with their drinking and stuff, but like doesn't know 
um, doesn't really know if they're an alcoholic or whatever, but like, you know, knows that they drink too much and would like to not drink so much and maybe have had some, some quite like negative experiences and stuff. Um, but they're not really like sort of like aware of the fact that like you, you can just like not, not drink, you know, and, and be fine. Um, and then that person like, you know, invites me out and we're out and stuff. And then like, I'm just having like a, a non-alcoholic beer or like I'm not drinking or like I'm drinking water or whatever, you know, and I'm fine. I'm doing okay. I'm not like, yes. I'm not like fucking, I'm, I'm just like totally fine and, and content. That person might be like, oh shit, you know, like, wow. Like, I don't know. It's, it's possible to be fine and content without, without yes. drinking like nine drinks or whatever yeah. in, a, in, in an hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like, maybe I would like to, to be able to do that. And so that person might ask me something and I'm not going to go to that person and be like, you have a fucking drinking problem. Yeah. You know, like you have to come to AA with me. Like if you don't come, I'm going to tell your fucking mom, you yeah. know? Um, but if they ask me, I'll tell them, you know, and like kind of by the same token, I just think about like some, you know, some people I've worked with and stuff like that who, you know, they have kind of reactionary views about, let's say about like trans people or, or about like queer people or something, you know? Um, and it's not necessarily that they're like bad people, you know? They just have internalized the same kinds of like yes. stupid messages that like millions and millions of people have internalized. You know, they, they're hung up about their masculinity, young guys who are like trying to, you know, they want to look like tough and, 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 um, not vulnerable because being a vulnerable young man is extremely scary, you know, um, and extremely frowned upon. Right. So, you know, they're trying to project a certain kind of masculinity, this, that, and the other. And, uh, and like, they'll say something, you know, that's like, just like, like low key or even high key homophobic or something. And I'll just be like, Oh, like, I don't know. I don't care about that. You know, it doesn't bother me at all. And I'm like completely like cool, calm and collected. And I'm not, yes. you know, I'm not like quaking. I'm not like some, you know, person that can't be respected by them. Like whatever. Like I'm just like a regular person. Um, but I'm not bent out of shape about like the personal decisions of other people, you know, and it sort of gives them like an opportunity to be like, oh, like, I guess I also could just not be bent out of shape about this. Yeah. And like in a certain way, it's like much cooler exactly. and like, like less like fucking like hysterical to not be fucking bent out of shape about the personal decisions of other people, yes. you know? Um, and I think that that is like in general, like a more effective way in our day to day lives to like change people's behavior over the long term than fucking scolding them about it and being like, hey, man, that's really not fucking cool cool, you know, like you can't say that, like whatever. Yeah. Um, because like when you act like that, most of the time people are like, okay, whatever, it's fucking one of them then. Yeah, exactly. You know, and this person is hysterical and this yeah. person like can't be cool and like whatever, you know what I mean? It's not to say you can't fucking like, you know, tell people to shut up if they're being annoying, but like just, yeah, kind of like as a, as a rule of thumb, like very often attraction rather than promotion is like much more effective. Right. Um, so that was kind of a long winded example, but I think it, it's helpful to sort of make things concrete, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And so I think like cancel culture by its very nature is literally like an attempt to you're the actor trying to run the show. Yes. Yes, definitely. And like you're micromanaging everybody's life around you. You're micromanaging the life of the person you're canceling. You're micromanaging the life of anyone who knows that person. You're trying to micromanage the internet. Right. You're trying to micromanage like you're trying to Western civilization. You're trying to tell people what they can and cannot do. Like, yeah. and you are personally assigning yourself in charge of that. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. And then like, I don't know what, in terms of like changing the things that you can, mm -hmm. like, this is where, as I've said before, I like to relentlessly constantly drag things back to the level 
of the society, the level of the social. And I'm like, we cannot always be thinking about things on the level of the individual. This is like a bad, bad fucking habit that we've gotten into on the left where we're like, it's my personal job, me personally, Mm -hmm. especially on the more radical left and especially on the anarchist inflected left. It's my personal job to control everyone else. And in that, in so doing, transform society. That's basically the end goal of this shit, right? It's like, it's like, if I do this to enough people, if I scold enough people, if I quote unquote educate enough people who did not ask to be educated, you know, if I like post enough infographics to people who all believe the same thing as me anyway, um, eventually the world will change. And like, if, if it doesn't change, it's because I'm not doing it hard enough, you know? Um, that's kind of like the logic behind all this shit, but I'm like, that's not going to change anything you know you personally cannot change the world yeah you yourself personally i'm pointing at the computer right now cannot change the world all by yourself yeah you know what it takes is a massive collective action like and this is what we're constantly trying to say you know it takes massive collective action it will take a social movement like an enormous social movement that has longevity that has internal consistency that has like um that has like a set of goals and policies, you know, and that can mobilize very disparate, different groups of people um, by using the concept of solidarity, yes. getting them together and making sure that they see that they have like these, these um, um, interests in common. And then once you have that, once you have a movement, a social power, a left that is capable of setting policy, then you can start setting policy that does transform the world, right? And like this is sort of one of the central um, observations of of Marxism is that more or less, like, like you can't you can't change the world by changing the people. You change the people by changing the world, mm-hmm. you know, because if I fucking like walk up to you and tell you to believe something different, you're not going to believe it. You know, like that's just not really usually how it works. Mm-hmm. But if you transform the conditions in which people live, like eventually, especially over like generations, right, um, people will change, right? Like the, the, the people who are like who grow up, who are taught in an environment where like, you know, it, it's very normal to accept difference or whatever, like they're much more likely to accept difference, mm-hmm. right? Um, and also like people who are brought up in conditions where like they have their material needs met are much less likely to have certain kinds of like, um, you know, behaviors like, you know, violent or like acting out or like, you know, antisocial in various ways because like they're they're going to be like carrying around less fucking trauma with them, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. I think there's a two-pronged approach, you know, because like I can hear people squawking in my brain when you're saying this because it's like people are like, well, I don't want to wait for that. You know, like they're like, I don't want to wait generations. I don't, I don't want to wait until we have like an organized left. And like, I agree that like, it's not enough to just say, okay, well, when we have an organized left, because like people need solutions now. Right. So I see it as a two-pronged approach, but fortunately I think that these two prongs, they are positively self-reinforcing. Right. So there's what you're talking about, which is like building solidarity, working for, towards an organized left, and then making changes on like a systems level with policy so that we can have sustainable long-term changes, right? Right. Then there's like the interpersonal level of like dealing with the muck of where we are right now mm-hmm. as all of this is unfolding, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so 
this is the stuff that I feel like people get so snagged on that they can't even move towards what you're talking about. Like they can't even go there because they're so stuck in the muck of the situation that we're currently in, which is like, you know, how do we deal with people? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, how do we deal with people? How do we deal with people that we don't like? How do we deal with people we disagree with? How do we deal with people who are acting in really antisocial ways? Which brings it back to the spiritual question, man. Because like how you deal with people is a spiritual question in a certain way. Yeah, it is. But I want to be more concrete. So like one of the things that I think is kind of like a a kind of like fundamental difference in the beliefs like it's like when you're making when you're making all of these arguments and all of these you have all these beliefs and you kind of scale it back to like the fundamental belief underneath them you know to me i really do fundamentally work with a model that is in alignment with what we were just saying about internal family systems i actually believe that all people have this self inside of them. I believe that. I believe that all people, from an evolutionary standpoint of being social animals, have inside of them not only the capacity for empathy, compassion, consideration, but an inherent inbuilt, like, reason for doing that, for behaving in those ways. This is what I believe, and maybe people disagree with me, But I think it makes sense because we are social animals who evolved to be in social groups. So it makes sense that social characteristics would be inherent to our species. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, there might be some minor exceptions with people who have like brain damage or various like conditions like that, but go ahead. Yes, but like inherently I'm like this is- Generally speaking, it's a species, yeah. This is a species condition for us. And so if that's the case, then all of these antisocial behaviors are happening for some reason. They're adaptive or maladaptive, more correctly, right? Sure. They are the result of social injuries and people learning to adapt away from their social, their inherent social inclinations. That's what I really believe. And so for me, it is not a question of people being good people or bad people. And if you believe that it's a question of people being good or bad or that they have inherent badness within them that needs to be like, either like, I don't know, exercised out of them or like educated out of them, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. threatened out of them, punished out of them. You know, then that, if you believe that, that's going to lead you towards a certain set of actions. If you believe that inside of people is this inherent like social um, disposition mm-hmm. that has been covered over by a whole bunch of like antisocial coping strategies, right. then really what it's about is trying to figure out how to return to the social. How to get through to it, how to communicate with it. Yes. And that's the whole fucking thing. Yep. And so how you do that is actually in a social way, not in an antisocial way. When you behave in antisocial ways towards people, you increase the antisocial in them. And so what do I mean by that? I mean, shaming people is antisocial. Humiliating people is Mm antisocial. Punishing people is antisocial. Threatening people is antisocial. All of those types of behaviors are going to bring out an antisocial response in people or perhaps an appeasing response, one or the other. It's either going to make them be like, fuck you, actually, or it's going to make them be like, okay, hey, please, I'm sorry, you know? Right. Um, it is not going to encourage them to connect with this higher self that internal family systems is talking about. Right. Right? The approach that I think is most effective is to present people 
with a way back to human community and to demonstrate through, through modeling it and through communicating it in non-coercive and non-shaming ways right. that it is in their best interest to do so, that it is going to feel better and totally. it is going to be a better experience for them because they want to be social, because they are social, because they are apes, you know? Yes. <laughs> and so, like, this is the thing. It's, it's actually just, like, trying to help people return to what they are. And I really fucking believe that to be true. And so that informs me in, in what I think is effective, like, responses to things. And, like, that is not to say that we don't ever use things like intervention and boundaries. We obviously do have to use those. Intervention and boundaries are social, you know? Saying, like, look, you know, you are consistently hurting people, so we need to have some boundaries here. Or we need to, like, intervene on that because we can't accept that. It's not a social thing to be doing. Um, but we aren't going to be humiliating you, exiling you, punishing you. We're going to be encouraging you to return to the fold. Mm. You know? Yeah, definitely. So I really feel like that kind of stuff, which has to do with how we relate, on an interpersonal level and how we relate in a way that encourages the social and how we relate in a way that sees the social in the other person that assumes that it's there and is trying to reach it. Um, that this stuff goes hand in hand with the stuff that you were talking about, about building solidarity so that we can have an effective left. Yeah. And it is in fact the work of relationships that bring us into relation into solidarity. And right. it is the work of solidarity that brings us into relationships. Like the two things go hand in hand. Right. And so that's how we do it. Like it's, yes, we do need to build this functioning effective left. And as we do that work, you know, if we relate in the way that I'm describing here, where we aren't being condescending and fucking rude to each other, but we're actually trying our best to behave in a social way, that is going to increase people's desire to be in solidarity it's going to increase people's social behavior. It's going to decrease people's antisocial behavior. Totally. And I mean, like, one, one of the reasons why um, God, the God concept can be useful um, is because it helps us orient ourselves. And, like, what I mean by that is, like, with regard to everything that you were just saying, it's sort of like coming to that conclusion can be hard. It can be extremely, like, counter to our impulses, right? If somebody is hurtful and very difficult to get along with, and, you know, there are people who are very fucking difficult to get along with, you know, um, it can be, it's, it doesn't feel natural to sort of extend that kind of compassion to them and so on. But one way that we can sort of like force ourselves into it is with the God concept by being like, that person is loved by God, you know, exactly the same way that I am, you know, like, and this is like, this has been a strength of religions, I think. Like, mm -hmm. it, it, it's something that, like, has animated a lot of people who who are religious, you know? Who, it, it's, like, it's like a reason why churches and stuff, like, who might have, like, otherwise very reactionary views about things are able to, you know, operate, like, soup kitchens for fucking, like, a hundred years or something, you know? Um, and, it, you know, part of that is just this idea that, like, people people are deserving, you know, it, it doesn't matter who they are, yes. what they've done, you know, um, it's the same reason why they have chaplains and prisons and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, and, and of course, like you can disagree with, and I do, you can disagree with like all the other tenets of the religion itself, you know, but the idea that like God cares about everyone, you know, equally, um, no matter their station, no matter what they've done, 
is a really important one. And like, if we take that up as socialists, what does it lead us to? It leads us to the idea that people, all people, regardless of their station, regardless of what they've done, should be taken care of. Yes. Right? Um, and it also means that like we can't expect everyone to conform with our own um, personal vision of whatever they should look like and how people should behave, you know, um, because in the end, that's not up to, excuse me, that's not up to me individually to decide, you know, and like, you know, you could say it's up to God, um, or you could say it is basically that there is like a, a logical flow of events, you know, that we should be trying to sort of like move towards as a society, you know, and there are like many, many, many fucking very illogical, irrational, and and fucked up crazy ways that our society operates that we can be moving away from and like in many ways like socialism has always been a sort of um it's been very interested in in rationalizing things and and sort of pointing out that the capitalist economy like is um is extremely irrational in in a lot of ways you know um and that we can make it more rational and we can make it like work in a in a more logical way for us um and thereby bring about a lot more um, equality um, between people and make sure that everyone is being taken care of because it's irrational that there are people who live on the fucking street. Yes. You know, that doesn't make any fucking sense. That is not in alignment, I think, with the sort of like natural flow of things. And it's not in alignment with um, with the idea of a God that loves everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also think like another spiritual teaching that is pretty common is just, like, the idea of, like, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, you know? And yes. I think that, like, I think that, like, social justice culture, it really does fucking pull out the worst of religion in its impulses mm -hmm. um, and not the best of it. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> totally. Because... It's, like, all the, like, proselytizing zealotry with none of the, like, like God loves everyone. Exactly. Yeah. And, like, this idea that, like... Because I think, you know... People will, if I point out that many abusive people are survivors, you know, and many people who do some of the most fucked up things have had the most fucked up things happen to them, people in social justice culture will respond to that by being like, well, not all survivors do that, so it's no excuse. Mm -hmm. Or like, I'm a survivor and I didn't abuse anyone. Right. You know? And so it's this idea that the reason that this survivor didn't abuse anyone is something inherent in their character, that they are like essentially better, more moral. You know, sure. and the other one is somehow bad. There's something weak or bad about them that they could not resist this impulse to abuse. Um, at least that's how I understand that argument. Because why? What are you trying to say by saying, "Okay, well, I didn't," so? And it's like, okay, well, good for you. It, really putting yourself into someone's shoes means trying to understand the circumstances under which you might do that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And just, like, being honest about the fact that we're all, like, kind of close to crazy shit. But people know? don't think that they are. People and don't think that they are, but they fucking are. <laughs> and it's, I think, being an addict and, like, having had a crazy life really makes this so clear to me in a way that, like, I think a lot of people are in denial about. Yeah. I'm sorry, but, like, the, most, the more antisocial someone's behavior, the more pain they're in. Like... They are in, they're antisocial because they are in pain, because there's some kind of maladaptive thing going on in there, and that's how they're coping. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I see someone acting totally antisocial, I'm not like, oh, that's a bad person. I'm like, that's a suffering person. Yeah, definitely. And if we can start to make that shift in our understanding, I think that would really, really help us in terms of how we respond to situations like that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I don't know. I've said this example, I think, on my Instagram. But, like, one time I was at the dog park, and a dog came into the dog park with a human, obviously. Um, <laughs> and this dog was immediately, like, quite aggressive-looking, like, growling, barking. Um, and the person next to me said, he's scared. Mm. Right? That dog was acting scary, so we were all feeling scared, but that person said, he's scared, so that's it. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That, right. is, that is a generous and accurate interpretation as to why the dog is acting in a threatening way. The dog is acting threatening and antisocial because the dog is scared, and us as apes, I feel like we do that in an even more intense way because... We are such social animals and our social relationships are so meaningful and so intense to us that when we are suffering, it is very often wrapped up in the social. And so it is very often expressed in the antisocial. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. So and yeah, like people are either like suffering or have suffered in a huge way or are like alienated to like a incredible degree. Which is like, all suffering. Yeah. Alienation is suffering. Yeah, it's a type of suffering for um, sure. Yeah. And so... I guess the other thing that I wanted to pull out in this episode is because I think, you know, people often ask us about, all right, well, if not cancel culture, then what? You know, if not accountability processes, then what? Then God. (laughs) And, And like, I very often I'm like, you know, the 12 steps is a model that I think would be very, very effective, you know, if we're starting to to ask the question about, like, how do we move towards responsibility? Um, how do we encourage responsibility? How do we create tools for people to become responsible when they have acted in antisocial and and hurtful and fucked up ways, you know? Right. And the steps offer such a beautiful model for that. And I think that step three is a very, very important step in this process because when people, you know, think about responsibility or accountability as they like to call it they're always thinking about step nine which is direct amends right they're Mm -hmm. thinking about some kind of version of that right or maybe a combination of step five and step nine you know admitting that you did something wrong and trying to repair it right but like i believe all the steps are like fundamental to the process of becoming responsible and so the way that step three fits into that is in a certain way step three is about like admitting that you deserve care Mm. and re-entering into the social, re-entering into a larger universe that is not just about you, in which you are not all alone struggling for your survival, in which you can be cared for, in which you can belong. And it is connecting to this larger system of meaning in a spiritual sense and in a social sense that you fit, that you belong in the universe that you don't have to be the actor running the show. Yeah. That you can let go a little bit. And just act. And that like you can, that others socially and also spiritually will step in to help take care of you. Mm-hmm. And that you don't have to be the one who fucking does everything, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that this is so important because if we don't arrive at that place, like step three 
offers a level of safety, like a sense of security and safety. And that's, again, like we were saying at the beginning, that doesn't mean nothing bad is going to happen. But when you are connected in the step three sense, the spiritual sense, you trust that whatever happens, you can face it. Yeah, definitely. And like it, it gives you a sense of independence, which they point out in the literature is kind of ironic because it's a step that's kind of about dependence, like dependence on, on, on God or on a higher power, on, on a spiritual program. Um, but that generates independence for you. Mm-hmm. You know, it generates safety and also independence because it, it, it gives you so much more capacity to make choices. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it gets you out of like these like feedback loops yes. that go nowhere. You know, it frees up your energy. It gives you like a clearer head basically for like trying to determine like what things are, are possible and what aren't, you know? Um, and also I think that it, it stops you from, um, yeah, like ruminating on how to sort of like control the lives of other people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's very interesting because very often I'm just like, guys, like they're like, what do we do instead of cancel culture? And I'm like, well, basically the opposite because literally like training someone in the most profoundly antisocial way cannot produce social outcomes in that person. So if you want someone to become responsible, that person has to belong to the human community. Mm. It is impossible to be responsible to other humans if you do not belong to the human community. Yeah. Denying people their inherent belonging to the human community will only produce antisocial behavior in that person. And it will not empower them to become responsible. And when we show people their inherent belonging... And we give them that level of safety that, you know, yes, there might be boundaries, like doesn't mean you can be anywhere or be friends with everyone, you know, um, there may be trust that needs to be earned back, things like that, but your inherent belonging to the human community is irrevocable. When people see that and that level of safety exists, this is where those other parts using the IFS model, those antisocial maladaptive parts can step back and let self come into the driver's seat because those parts are trusting that doing so is not going to result in them being exiled, humiliated, etc. Of course, if those parts sense that they're going to be exiled, humiliated, punished, they are not going to step back. They are going to continue. And so we actually need to show people that base level of safety. And for a social species, safety means belonging. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So in the end, I don't know. I think the step, I mean, one of the first things it says in like the NA book is just that the step is about turning hope into action. Mm. And, uh, I really like that. I think that like a better world is possible. Um, we're not going to get it by hitting our heads against the wall. Um, but, uh, we can, we can cultivate that hope and we can, we can put it into action. And, um, I think that a spiritual outlook is like one of the only ways to do that. So, um, I encourage people to think about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess that's it for this episode. Thank you guys so much for being here and for listening. Um, if you guys love the podcast, if you support what we're doing, um, you can support it on Patreon, patreon.com slash fucking canceled. I'm super broke right now. So, um, yeah, this is a totally 
independent project and um, not exactly totally self-sufficient yet, the podcast. So we really could use the support. So go to patreon.com slash fucking canceled and uh, get some bonus goodies as well while you're there. Yep. So thank you guys so much and we will see you next time. Take it easy. Je suis un OG.